A quick content warning. This podcast contains adult language and deals with difficult themes that include sexual assault. Now let's start the show. When producers of the hit TV series Siskel and Ebert were hiring for a new show director in 1993, they hit a major snag. The previous director was leaving the program, which was filmed in Chicago, in order to take a job in New York. And when producers offered the job to someone, they found that this was something they would have to do again and again and again. And I said, well, how many people have you offered it to? And they said, 24. And I'm like, what? That's former Chicago-based TV director Don Dupree, who as fate would have it, would be the 25th person to be offered this job on the show. I, I had always been a big movie fan and I had watched those guys growing up. They contacted me out of the blue. I was working for NBC in Chicago. For Don, landing the job to direct the hit movie reviews program with legendary critics Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert was a major opportunity. However, blowing through 24 job offers was more than a little crazy. But according to Don, there was a reason for that. It turns out that everybody that they offered the job to that was on, that Roger knew about or recommended, Gene would veto. And everyone that Gene came up with, Roger would veto. It was a, a rivalry. After getting approval from the executives of Disney, the company that produced the show, Don's next stop in this three-phase series was to have an interview with Gene Siskel. I had to go interview with Gene. Cisco, who I'd never met over at his house, his condo, which was a beautiful place in Lakeview in Chicago. So I went and uh, it was the first time I had ever seen a giant screen TV. I was really intimidated because I, I said, these guys were icons to me. And so Gene asked me to stand next to the TV and he put in a, a recent show that he and Roger had done and asked me to critique the show. And Gene disagreed with me on pretty much everything I said. And so, I reached a point where I just thought, I'm definitely not getting this job, so I'm gonna be really brutally honest. So it just went downhill from there. Despite the fact that Don had tried to bomb this interview by way of brutal honesty, Gene's response was surprising. Gene said to me, well, we don't agree on a lot, but I have to say you were honest, which is more than most people we've interviewed have been. And he said, so, you know, I like you, so you got my vote. And I was shocked. But the next step was to get Roger Ebert's approval. This challenge became more daunting, especially now that Gene Siskel had just vouched for Don. But Gene then did something for Don that the TV director did not expect. He set him up to succeed and win over Roger Ebert. And he goes, do you like old movies? I said, of course. Great. Well, Roger, you love old movies and tell him you saw that. Fantastic. The second thing is, do you have uh, a Mac computer? Yeah, I've got a Mac. Perfect. Roger thinks there are two types of people in this world, those with a Mac and those without. And those without Macs are idiots, and those with Macs are brilliant. So tell him you got a Mac and you got the job. At first, Don suspected he was being set up to fail. I, I thought it was a setup all the way. They'll have a big laugh at my expense later on. But after a cab ride to the theater where Ebert was screening a movie, Don was at least willing to give Gene's advice a try. So Roger says, what can you tell me about yourself? And I said, well, I love old movies, and I own a Mac. And he looked at me and said, you got the job. And just like that, Don worked with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert on their show for nearly two decades until it went off the air. He said that many times production on the show could be intense, that the fighting we heard on air was nothing compared to what happened in the studio between takes. No one from the outside was allowed in. They got really hostile. 
and uh, we would have to stop taping many times. The fighting was, uh, it was pretty intense. But then the fighting stopped. In 1999, Gene Siskel died suddenly and tragically as the result of terminal brain cancer. And despite whatever heaviness Roger Ebert might have felt about the death of his longtime collaborator, the show had to go on to keep his show at the movies running during the period immediately following Gene Siskel's death, Roger Ebert decided not to hire a permanent co-host, at least not right away. Instead, he would bring on a rotating series of co-hosts, guest critics who reviewed movies for newspapers and magazines. And to Don's surprise, when selecting potential co-hosts for his new show, Ebert picked someone from a place that no one had expected. The internet. And this person from the internet would be none other than the webmaster of Ain't It Cool News, a man by the name of Harry J. Knowles. On this episode of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, we will chronicle the era when both the website and its creator were at the height of their influence and power. We will also talk about Ebert and Knowles, a trio of controversies that occurred at Comic-Con, the death of Joe Hollenbeck, and the rise of Vin Diesel. All of this and more, so let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Episode 4, Thumbs Up. listening to the opening theme song from Ebert at the movies. This is the program that film critic Roger Ebert created following the tragic death of his co-host Gene Siskel. As we mentioned during the cold opening, rather than a permanent co-host, this revamped program would feature a rotating series of guest critics. According to Don Dupree, who directed and produced more than 200 episodes of At The Movies, the idea to have a rotating series of co-hosts came from Ebert himself. And it was a real battle about who we would have on from week to week. Uh, everybody had their favorites. Um, everybody had people they didn't ever want to you know, have back on the show after some of their appearances. Don adds that one of the fights that happened behind the scenes occurred when Ebert wanted to fill the late Gene Siskel's chair with guest critic Harry Knowles, the founder and webmaster of Ain't It Cool News. Uh, and Roger loved Harry. I mean, loved Harry um, and fought for him to be on the show. You know, Harry was not the most telegenic person. Roger couldn't care less. And what was really interesting for me was uh, Roger, I think, liked Harry more than Harry liked Roger. Harry went on to appear on several episodes of Ebert at the Movies. Here's a clip of Harry reviewing the classic Hayao Miyazaki film Princess Mononoke. Although some viewers may be confused by the mysticism and magic, the film is an absolute treat for animation buffs everywhere. I'm not the biggest anime fan in the world, but Princess Mononoke offers more than enough to earn a thumbs up from me. Boy, my thumb is way, way up. I love this film. Mm -hmm. uh, my heart leapt up when I watched this film because the vision of Miyazaki is so... Honestly, I have to say that for a guy from the internet with zero broadcasting experience, Harry Knowles didn't do a half-bad job co-hosting opposite a TV veteran like Roger Ebert. He's slightly awkward, but he still holds his own, for the most part. And during his appearances on Ebert's show, one of the oft-repeated jokes that Harry and the site's followers in the comments section made was a riff on the fact that for once in Roger Ebert's career as the co-host of his TV show, comparatively speaking, he was no longer the fat one. 
But according to Don Dupree, working with Harry Knowles on these episodes was not without its challenges. Harry really didn't care how he looked on camera. That was one of the big things. And so for me, directing the show, I was I tried to make Harry look look the part, but I, I, I realized after a while, Harry needed to look like Harry. And so it was a whole different dynamic. I think I was wrong trying to make Harry be more telegenic. According to Drew McQueenie, a.k.a. Moriarty, who at the time was Harry Knowles' key contributor, West Coast editor, and dare I even say it, friend, Ebert's love and respect for Ain't It Cool News went beyond just Harry Knowles. Unlike many traditional film critics and journalists who regarded these so-called new kids from the internet as if they were dangerous weirdos or mutants, Ebert embraced these outsiders as colleagues. While Drew never got to appear on Ebert's show in 2002, Ebert flew him down to Chicago to be an invited guest speaker as part of Ebert's Overlooked Film Festival. Um, I think I became a working film critic when I went to the Overlooked Film Festival and went on stage with Roger and had an hour and a half long conversation about the history of anime where he referred to me as the expert on stage. It was an out-of-body experience. That was surreal to me. I spent a week, four four or five days, being driven around by Roger Ebert, having him tell me stories about his college days and going out to eat with him after every movie and sitting at a table late at night and talking with him and Chris Christopherson and Werner Herzog about what we just, he was crazy. And there was no sense from him it was a favor or that it was him being a mentor. It was your writing earned you this spot at this table and I'm going to treat you like a peer. Back to Harry's appearances on Ebert at the movies. Drew says this thumbs up from Roger, the first movie critic to win a Pulitzer Prize for his work, went a long way towards legitimizing both the webmaster and Ain't It Cool News. A high sign from a, a nod from him, an acknowledgement from him in many ways was an endorsement that then made someone's career. The truth is that the early 2000s were the peak era for Ain't It Cool News. In fact, if they never happened, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast. Ain't It Cool News was booming with daily visitors who rushed to the site each day for reviews as well as the unfiltered dirt on behind-the-scenes happenings on major Hollywood productions. At the time, Harry told reporters he was getting about 2 million unique visitors per day. Ain't It Cool News also featured an ever-growing digital bullpen of contributing writers and critics, a veritable Ocean's Eleven of film nerds and movie geeks who were committed to helping Harry Knowles take over the world of filmmaking. Emily Von Seal, who would later write for Ain't It Cool News under the codename Horrorella, first discovered the website as a reader during this golden era. They kind of brought me into another level of film criticism through their writing because it was a site that would publish multiple reviews for the same film when it came out. So I was able to read different perspectives on the same movie and kind of get different people's takes. Each week at Ain't It Cool News, the site greeted most of the week's newest releases with a phalanx of reviews from an entire team of critics. Aside from Drew McWeenie, a.k.a. Moriarty, Eric Vespi, a.k.a. Quint, and someone called Joe Hallenbeck, who again asked me not to share his real name, there was also Chicago-based Steve Prokopi, a.k.a. Capone. Steve actually met Harry in person while he was in town for one of the tapings of Ebert at the movies. I, I met him coming out of the um, screening room. There's like a critic screening room here in Chicago that's not in a movie theater. It's just like a little 50, 60 seat thing uh, downtown. And he, he and Roger came out uh, together. And then, yeah, then I, then I met Harry and 
like I said, we went to we had dinner and drinks, and it was it was lovely. It was it was fun. Um, I think he had some aspirations about being a permanent co-host, but uh, I don't think that was ever in the cards for him or most anybody else who uh, Ebert was bringing in at the time. Steve wasn't wrong about that last part. Harry Knowles would recruit other writers during this time, including one of its very first women contributors. This person named Rebecca Elliott wrote under the pseudonym Annette Kellerman. When Rebecca joined the site in the late 90s, she was one of the only recurring women writers to write for that site or any internet movie news site at the time. A former resident of Oklahoma, Rebecca says the explosion in popularity of Ain't It Cool News combined with the birth of the very first Alamo Draft House felt like the beginning of a new scene and that the allure was so powerful that she and her husband uprooted their lives to make their home in Austin. It seemed like there was already kind of a core group of people around Austin that would show up at all of these various events. And Harry was just like this ringleader. Well, and then the Alamo Draft House came along and they would have their events and then Harry would sort of low-key promote them. I mean, it was nothing formal at the time, I don't think. And yeah, there was like this just awesome early, early community. Rebecca shared this vivid memory she has of walking into the lobby during one of the festivals hosted by Quentin Tarantino at the original Alamo Draft House. There, she was surrounded by some of the greatest working filmmakers of the era. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. If the story of Ain't It Cool News was like the Martin Scorsese film Goodfellas, and if you really stop to think about it, it kind of is, what Rebecca Elliott describes here would most certainly have to be the Copacabana scene. And if you've never seen the movie Goodfellas, and you really should, it's this continuous Steadicam shot wherein Ray Liotta and Lorraine Bronco's characters enter the popular Copacabana nightclub through the side door. They walk past kitchen staff, waiters, entertainers, and gangsters as they make their way to their table. Only I guess instead of the Copacabana, it would be the original Alamo Draft House. And instead of dangerous, violent gangsters, it would be filmmakers and movie geeks. Anyway, here we go. Like, for real, you'd watch some crazy movies that Quentin programmed, and then you'd go up to the, to the lobby, and it would literally be like Guillermo del Toro, Richard Linklater, Quentin, um, Robert Rodriguez, like it would be like this whole like who's who of Austin luminaries. Mike Judge was there one time and I was like in this conversation circle with all these incredible directors. So that was like exciting just from like a geek standpoint and also from like a, you know, you see a lot of the same people all the time. You don't necessarily know them, but um, you just see kind of the same crew. Speaking of the same crew, another person who joined the website's team was an aspiring writer named C. Robert Cargill, who wrote under the pseudonym Massaworm. Robert says he was convinced by Eric Vespi to leave another website he was working on in order to join Ain't It Cool News. Robert adds that when he made the jump to Ain't It Cool, that Harry Knowles literally dropped a huge assignment onto his lap. Because he was just getting sent so many tapes. Uh, people were just sending him their undistributed films. And so every so often I would go over to his house and he'd hand me just a box of films and be like, go through this, only write about the good stuff. And so I was spending 40 hours a week watching Drek, just terrible, terrible, unreleasable films. Watching and reviewing stacks upon stacks of VHS tapes of low-budget indie films from writers and directors that no one had ever heard of before might have seemed like a grunt assignment especially since Cargill was not initially paid for his work at Ain't It Cool News. But this feature the website called Indie Indie empowered Cargill to help a lot of filmmakers land huge breaks that they desperately needed in their careers. 
And because of where Ain't It Cool was at the time, people were looking for those films. So if I wrote about a film and the, the log line hit the, the, the companies, they would start calling those filmmakers and want to watch those films. And some of those films got picked up. Some did not, but got those directors noticed and got them gigs. Another key attraction for Ain't It Cool News were the website's series of recurring guest writers. My most favorite of which was a person by the name of Alexandra Dupont. Purportedly a wealthy heiress, according to her, or his, no doubt made up bio, Alexandra Dupont wrote some of the very best analyses of film that you could find anywhere on the internet. In fact, one of my goals for this podcast was to interview Alexandria, if for no other reason than to celebrate their work. Sadly, the few writers at Ain't It Cool News who claim to know this writer's true identity refuse to spill the beans. Here's Drew McWeeny. Ah, the great mystery. Um, I am not entirely sure I'm allowed to give away Alexandra's identity still. Um, I believe it's out there online, sort of. Um, but I, I'm still not sure if I'm allowed to. Um, I didn't know for years and years. I found out about three years ago who Alexandra was. For the longest time, I just knew the, uh, the character and knew the voice. It was a carefully constructed voice that I think um, this person was very worried about being discovered. Fearing reprisals from the entertainment industry, many contributors at Ain't It Cool News remain shrouded in mystery. Kind of like superheroes in that regard. But not everyone in this mysterious band of contributors kept their identities a secret. According to Drew McWeeny, another guest contributor who was codenamed Ghost Boy went on to become an accomplished film director in his own right. I really loved publishing Ghost Boy, who was our festival reviewer. And Ghost Boy went to every festival. And my theory was the Ghost Boy was working festivals. It was like getting jobs as a volunteer at various festivals, Toronto, Sundance, Cannes, a couple of others, almost every year. And Ghost Boy turned out to be David Lowry. Aside from the live action remake of Pete's Dragon, David Lowry's other films include A Ghost Story, The Old Man and the Gun with Robert Redford, and this year's much beloved indie fantasy epic film, The Green Knight. Let one of your knights try to land a blow against me. Indulge me in this game. But perhaps the biggest early example of a breakthrough star who came up from the ranks of Ain't It Cool News is a contributor by the name of Kevin Beagle. During his brief tenure with Ain't It Cool News, Kevin wrote under the pseudonym Aguirre. In 1998, Kevin once attended a test screening of Bobby and Peter Farrelly's no-holds-barred gross-out comedy, There's Something About Mary. Is it to Frank or to Beans? Uh, I, I, I don't know. It looks like, I think it's a little bit of both. Break some veins! Break some veins! Coming off their unjustly maligned flop, Kingpin, the Farrelly brothers had very little clout with studios at the time. There were major conflicts behind the scenes in terms of how to complete their next film in post-production. With There's Something About Marrying, the Farrelly brothers had purposely made a raunchy, hard R-rated gross-out comedy, and the studio thought that cutting it down to a PG-13 rated movie would be a solid commercial choice. But according to former Anit Cool News editor and chief operating officer Paul Alvarado Dykstra, when Kevin wrote a test screening review of There's Something About Mary, it ultimately read as a validation of the Fairley Brothers' work on the movie, as well as a play-by-play on how to further edit the film. And it basically made every argument the Fairley Brothers were trying to make to the studio. And they printed it out, they put it on their office walls. 
and they circulated it to the studio and it helped them win the battle to get their cut of the movie um, approved. There's something about Mary went on to gross $369 million. Dykstra adds that in a nod to how helpful this test screening review was in terms of protecting their vision from studio interference, Peter and Bobby Farrelly contacted Harry Knowles directly. So they called Harry first to like, hey, we want to talk to this guy. And Harry's like, well, we don't divulge sources. That's like, and it was like, well, I don't want him to get in trouble. He's like, no, we don't want to get him in trouble. We want to thank him because he helped us. And then, like, they ended up hiring him, and he worked as an assistant for, for the Farrelly's, then a writing assistant, and worked his way up. That got him in the door in the industry. Kevin Beagle went on to work on such TV series as Scrubs and South Park as a writer and producer before co-creating the 2009 Courtney Cox sitcom Cougar Town. According to Paul, Kevin Beagle embodied the best-case scenario for people who wrote for Ain't It Cool News, and that he got in and out of there quickly and flipped that experience into a sustainable career. He got that ticket and he took it and ran. He did not look back. Was in contrast, I think some other people who maybe could have or should have left sooner and benefited from, from it. As we'll find out in later episodes, many of the writers who gave Ain't It Cool News the most in terms of time and sweat equity would ultimately pay dearly for their devotion to this website. The party was rolling. Harry Knowles was Danny Ocean, though not the one played by George Clooney in the 2001 remake directed by Steven Soderbergh. That movie had not been released yet. Harry would want you to think of him as the Danny Ocean from the original 1960s Ocean's Eleven, played by Frank Sinatra. In that version, Danny Ocean is a veteran of World War II who assembles his compatriots from the old war to pull off a great heist. When Danny called, they came. And what they heard was a plan of independent initiative and individual enterprise to stir the spirit of every swinging citizen. Harry, a veteran of the pre-navigated Usenet days of the internet, called on these people from different parts of the old World Wide Web together. According to Paul Cullum, one of the co-writers of Harry Knowles' biography, Ain't It Cool? At this point in Harry's life, studios were not just reading his website. Cullum adds that producers on major films were reaching out to him directly to get notes on their films. He's at this point, you know, he's giving notes on, on top flight scripts that are going into production. Uh, Edmunds was good friends with Chris McQuarrie and McQuarrie wrote like the first X-Men, I think. And he said that he would go in and meet with whoever the executive was. And they would say, you know, uh, uh, Harry has an interesting note uh, this morning on the, on Ain't It Cool about the third act. And they would bring up his notes talking to the screenwriter about the next draft. So Harry was actually influencing, you know, films as they were, you know, before they were in production. But as we also found out around this time, another thing that Harry and his team shared with the Ocean's Eleven crew is that a lot of the things they did were not always ethical. And on at least one particular instance, some of the activity that Harry's team was engaged in was straight up criminal. It's important to note that with newfound success comes fame, but fame works like a pendulum. What I mean by that is that when fame takes off for a newly minted celebrity, there's always going to be a vocal and sometimes even justifiable backswing. And since Harry Knowles was one of the first celebrities to be created by the internet, it makes sense that the initial backswing against both Harry and his website's newfound fame would come from the same place. I got the feeling from Harry like he was, he was really trying very hard to be the face of the online movie website audience when in fact there was like five 
10 sites by that time. That's Patrick Sorrell, who we first met in the second episode of this program. Patrick is the creator of the website Corona Coming Attractions, which many people agree is the first internet movie news site on the web. During the 90s, Patrick and the webmasters of other movie news websites felt that, in terms of media attention, Harry Knowles had managed to suck most of the oxygen out of the room. Two decades later, however, Patrick has a different view of the situation. He now acknowledges and even validates some of the reasons Harry might have beat him at his own game. You build a successful brand by building yourself. One of the things I do nowadays is I teach a social media course at a school. And I have people that want to be influencers. And I say, this is what you need to do to do the modern take. There's all these trailblazers that have done it. I did it another way. It didn't work. This is the way it works. They need to know like, okay, that's Kim Kardashian. That's what I expect from Kim Kardashian. They look at Harry. They, they looked at Harry and they wanted to see what they thought the internet movie fanboy was. And he gave them that. But around the time of Harry Knowles' many TV appearances, an internet war between Soriel and Knowles erupted. And this is going to sound silly, folks, especially now. But the issue at the very center of this battle was none other than Jimmy Smits. Yes, the same Jimmy Smits who starred on TV series like L.A. Law, NYPD Blue, and The West Wing. For you see, Soriel had a source who informed him one day that Jimmy Smits had just been cast in the then-untitled Star Wars prequel, Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Again, in retrospect, all of this sounds silly. After all, Episode 2 is clearly the worst of all the Star Wars films ever made. Period. Bar none. There is nothing worse with the word Star Wars in the title. Even the Christmas special. Simultaneously, at the time that all of this went down, Star Wars rumors, and more importantly Star Wars scoops from verified sources, were a major driver of website traffic during the late 90s and early 2000s. So when Soriel ran the story about Jimmy Smith's being cast to essentially play Princess Leia's adopted father, it was a big deal. All of which explains why when Soriel noticed his scoop had been copied and pasted nearly verbatim and posted on Ain't It Cool News without attribution, or more importantly, a backlink to Corona's coming attractions, Soriel was more than a little ticked off. It, it, it very much felt like it was downplaying coming attractions. There had been some run-up to this with other stories as well. Other webmasters had voiced similar problems. So I wrote an email and sent it out to the webmasters except for Harry. And then the webmasters that felt the way that I did, that Inaclu was downplaying or ignoring stories that they felt were important, uh, signed the email and I sent it off to Harry. The email Patrick wrote expressed the desire for a code of ethics to be shared across all major internet movie news sites. But when Patrick sent the email to Harry, the way Harry responded only made the situation worse. And so Harry played a game of, of, of PR where he published the email on his website and then said, you know, I'm going to refute all of this and here's what I feel about it. And I felt he was doing some spin control. But what it, what it really kind of turned into when he did it that way is that he, he took something that I was hoping would be private and he made it public so he could launch, like nowadays it's an attack campaign, right? If, if somebody pisses you off, you let your Twitter followers know or you put, your blog, you put it on your blog and then they go out and attack or dox the people. If Patrick had meant for the email to spark a healthy dialogue, 
leading to changes in the way movie news websites, and specifically Ain't It Cool News, treated their colleagues in this new media landscape, it could not have gone any worse. I felt like, dude, that's just a shitty thing to do, and I don't like it, and I think you played this wrong. This charged debate, or argument, between Patrick Sorial and Harry Knowles would eventually metastasize from the virtual hive of nerddom on the internet to the greatest swarm of geek culture in the real world, San Diego Comic-Con. That same year as the Jimmy Smith's debacle, both Harry Knowles and Patrick Sorial participated in a panel discussion about the very first X-Men film that was released that year. And followers of both sites realized that Patrick and Harry would be participating, they viewed this as an opportunity to basically put two beta fish in the same glass bowl. In other words, they were expecting a real-life internet fight to the finish. People wanted a fight. They wanted to have blood. And it was, it was his group against my group. And in San Diego, we had a panel where we had like one of the producers of X-Men. We had Kevin Smith. According to former Ain't It Cool News writer and managing editor Eric Vespi, the threat of any arguments between Soriel and Knowles were minuscule compared to the rumor that another person would be attending this event. And we had gotten word that he was going to show up and like try to drop all these bombshells or whatever and disrupt the panel. And sure enough, he does. And, and he stands up and starts throwing accusations at Harry. That man from the audience who began shouting accusations was an internet movie journalist named Ron Wells, the editor for another online publication called Film Threat. I reached out to Ron Wells for comment multiple times and failed to get a response. Um, Ron, if you're listening to this, uh, give me a shout. I would really love to talk to you. But the accusations, which Harry Knowles wasn't addressing, were the subject of a multi-part series of articles Wells wrote for Film Threat that divulged what were intended to be the dark secrets of Ain't It Cool News in hopes of bringing the site down. Wells was the editor of Film Threat's website from 1997 to 2003. But before the website... Film Threat originated as a printed magazine, co-founded by Chris Gore, who managed to briefly sell the publication to adult magazine maven Larry Flint in 1991. According to Patrick Sorial, he got a lot of pressure from Chris Gore to take on both Harry and Ain't It Cool News in the public forum. He was pissed off as a fan of coming attractions. and But he was the one that's like, yeah, you know what? Get pissed off, Patrick. Take a swing at this guy, you know? And... I, I felt like I was pulling back. I was trying to state my case, but I also felt, you know, people wanted blood. They wanted to see, you know, the USSR and uh, America go to war. I must break you. Allusions to the Ivan Drago fight in Rocky IV notwithstanding, Patrick ignored the peer pressure from his fellow webmasters to take Harry Knowles down at Comic-Con. But Ron Wells did not echo such restraint. In the lead-up to Ain't It Cool News' appearance at Comic-Con, Wells had written a series of scathing articles for Film Threat that were essentially a three-part expose, a full roast of an epic internet takedown that both Wells and Film Threat were trying to serve up to Ain't It Cool News. I mean, it was journalism. It was journalism about the internet, about an inter internet influencer. Um, and it was very unflattering. Wells' articles hit on a series of talking points, which included the Jimmy Smith Star Wars debacle, as well as the opinion that Harry could be bought off by studios. But the main focus of Wells' intended takedown of Harry Knowles focused primarily on three stories, one of which had already been widely reported by mainstream news. It's a wonderful night for us 
I'm referring to the story known as the Oscar hacking scandal, which happened earlier that same year. Allegedly, Harry Knowles had gotten an anonymous tip about how to access a computer that was supposedly owned by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences through its IP address. Harry claims he was told that the computer potentially contained a file with a short list of every nominee at the Academy Awards, which Harry considered leaking before they were officially announced. According to Drew McWeenie, when he first heard of this tip from an unvetted source, his gut instinct was to tell Harry not to post it. Dumb. Just dumb. He was he was dumb. We told him he was dumb the entire time he was doing it. I thought it was a really stupid thing to run in the first place. Um, there were many times that if there had been an editorial board or an editorial process and we could have all had some say, things would not have been run. Yeah, he just ran it because he wanted to run it. Harry Knowles would even claim he had the owner of the computer and the contents of the file verified by his site's so-called tech expert and longtime friend Paul Alvarado Dykstra, who wrote for the site under the pen name RoboGeek. The only problem is, despite the fact that he was called RoboGeek, according to Dykstra, he was not a computer expert whatsoever. Uh, yeah, so um, I'm not a computer expert. Uh, I was never employed in that capacity. Uh, <laughs> that is an absurd and desperate effort to throw me under that bus. But uh, this was one of many points of contention uh, he and I had back then. Uh, that he apparently never never corrected or retracted that. It goes without saying that if this alleged shortlist of Oscar nominees was exactly what Harry Knowles had claimed it was, it would have been a major scoop, earth-shattering in terms of entertainment reporting. This is what everyone thought until the Academy made their official announcement of actual nominees, revealing that Harry Knowles' big Oscar scoop got several categories wrong. Paul Alvaro Dykstra said that if Harry had put forth even the slightest amount of effort beforehand, he would have discovered that the secret file was nothing more than just press bios of the actors and filmmakers who were most likely to be nominated that year. Uh, this was Harry, once again, always wanting to enjoy the privileges of a publisher, but never take any of the responsibility. In the fallout of Harry Knowles' alleged Academy Awards hack, traditional media outlets all over the world rejoiced to see the boy from the internet get it wrong in such a big, huge way. That said, it was the next two stories in Ronwell's three-part takedown of Harry Knowles that brought new information to light that was previously unknown by most people at the time. The first revelation centered on a pair of reviews that Harry wrote for two screenplays of unproduced horror films that he posted as part of a bigger article in September of 1999. One of the scripts that Harry reviewed was a story of a sleepwalking 15-year-old boy from the suburbs who talks to a dead guy in a bloody rabbit costume. Why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? Why are you wearing that stupid man suit? That script, of course, was for Donnie Darko, written by Richard Kelly. And true enough, the low-budget film became at the very least a cult hit that brought more exposure to its former young child stars and real-life siblings, Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal. However, the real problem with Harry's article emerged from the other script that he wrote about. Here's an excerpt from that review. Like Donnie Darko, it is a superb script, but instead it's about adult characters in a place where they don't have any control over anything. It mixes up elements from Disneyland to Ghost in the Shell. The wow. screenplay for this movie titled Amusements was never produced. But what makes this particular ray from Harry so noteworthy, and most would say highly unethical, is that the script was co-written by a man named Drew McWeenie. And yes, I'm talking about the same Drew McWeenie who was secretly writing under the nom de plume Moriarty for Ain't It Cool News. 
Here's Patrick Sorial. When he did a review of Drew's scripts, right, for amusements and put it on the site and was talking about how great script it was, and he didn't say, by the way, this is Moriarty. You know, this, he's one of the co-authors of this. That is a definite clear sign of not having a certain level of integrity to your, to your readership. Both Harry and Drew's responses to these charges of violating the most basic ethics in journalism by avoiding conflicts of interest, or at the very least disclosing them, was no less suspect. At the time, they claimed that when Harry got the script, he simply did not know that Moriarty and Drew McWeeny were the same person. They said this in spite of the fact that they had corresponded online and via telephone for years. They said this even though both Harry and Drew had made a name for themselves as the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis of internet movie news culture by unearthing the many, many secrets of the film industry and sharing them with the public. When asked to comment on this matter today, Harry still maintains he did not know that Drew McQueenie was Moriarty when he ran a review of his script for Amusements in 1999. When I shared how implausible all of this seemed to Harry Andrews and It Cool News colleague Eric Vespi, even he struggled to accept this premise. And Harry said at the time that he didn't know what Drew's real name was. And that might be true, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I, that one might be a stretch. You know, that, that one might've been him backtracking. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you for sure. Final and most shocking revelation that Ron Wells shared in his three-part series on Harry Knowles concerned yet another major contributor to Ain't It Cool News, the writer codenamed Joe Hollenbeck. In early 1999, fans of the site realized that Joe Hallenbeck's byline had all but disappeared from the reviews that were posted on the page, leading many to inquire about his whereabouts. Ain't It Cool News writer Jeremy Smith remembers an article that Harry Knowles wrote on April Fool's Day in 1999 to address these questions. And at one point, Harry wrote a thing about how Hallenbeck was, that he had infiltrated Lucasfilm, and that he was going to, he was determined to get the first review of uh, The Phantom Menace. Uh, which uh, was, of course, not true. He was uh, in jail. But that's how that's how it played out on the site. No one would know about Joe Hollenbeck's true fate until the story broke on Film Threat as part of Ron Wells' three-part expose. Wells reported that Joe Hollenbeck, who again asked me not to share his real name, was part of a video piracy ring and had duplicated and or sold at least 529 pre-released movies on both America Online and Earthlink. Here's Joe Hollenbeck. One of the main reasons why I left is, is because of uh, uh, I was arrested for bootlegging movies. And uh, um, it was totally blown out of proportion. The problem was it wasn't what I was doing, it was what I had. It was the quality. It was kind of like drugs, where it's it's sort of like, you know, you, you, you get the drugs from a dealer who got them from another dealer, who got them from another dealer, and so on and so forth. And they cut it, and they cut it, and they cut it, and they cut it. Well, in my situation, I was getting it directly from the source, and it was the quality of what I had that was more important than the quantity that was getting out there. That source, according to Ron Wells, as well as the local California newspaper, was a person or persons who worked in and around major film studios. Citing anonymous sources, Ron Wells alleged that there were multiple industry professionals, or as Harry Knowles would call them, spies, who supplied work prints of unreleased movies to Joe Hollenbeck, who would then send them to Harry Knowles. In our previous episode, we talked about how Harry had boasted about watching an illegal work print copy of Starship Troopers in the review that he wrote for that film. He would later brag about doing the same thing for Disney's Tarzan, 
Mighty Joe Young, Mulan, and even Pixar's A Bug's Life. He also did the same with Fantasia 2000, a film he would go on to review on TV for Ebert at the movies. Fantasia 2000 is pure art, deserving not only my thumb way up, but multiple viewings as well. Gee, I enjoyed it too. Joe Hallenbeck claims that Harry was not aware of this at the time, but that in addition to sending the tapes to Ain't It Cool News, he was also selling them online. But despite these claims, according to Joe Hallenbeck, when both the FBI and representatives of the Motion Picture Association of America came knocking on his door to question him and seize the many bootleg tapes in his possession, Harry Knowles was a focal point in their investigation. What, what was funny is I think they wanted me to, you know, implicate Harry and all that stuff like it was some nefarious, huge bootlegging ring. And it wasn't anything like that. And, uh, you know, it was honestly just some stupid kid trying to make a couple extra bucks at the time. So, but you are saying without a doubt that Harry had nothing to do with it, right? No, I mean, he, he put up my reviews and that's it. As for receiving money from Harry for these illegally copied bootlegs, Joe Hollenbeck states he was never compensated financially. Oh no, Harry never gave me a dime for, I, I never received a dime for Harry for anything. I've never even received a gift from Harry. <laughs> I mean, maybe when I went out to Austin, he bought me dinner once. You know, that's it. In the telling of the story of Ain't It Cool News, there have been several times where it was difficult for me to discover what is or is not the truth. And this is definitely one of them. Especially when dealing with former writers and contributors of Ain't It Cool News. In large part because of the way they often blur this line between fantasy and reality and the creation of their online personas. But if there's one thing I will always believe from anyone who worked for Ain't It Cool News... It's the fact that they didn't get paid. Beyond that, despite the fact that Harry and Ain't It Cool News benefited in many ways from the writing and antics of Joe Hollenbeck, plus the access he had given them to pirated movies, they contributed nothing to his legal expenses. This particular detail still does not sit well with Paul Alvarado Dykstra. Harry uh, made him a target uh, and really rose him to such a prominence that he was almost begging to be arrested. And I don't just mean him personally, but I think the Hallenbeck um, character that was sort of fostered and fueled by the whole mythic structure of, of the Ain't It Cool world. Joe Hallenbeck was charged with a fine of $10,900 and sentenced to 120 days in jail or 60 days on a road crew for his role in this bootleg video operation. Facing the end of his time with Ain't It Cool News, Joe Hollenbeck had a taste of the wildlife. He got to be the film critic who made a big splash for publicly wishing death on director Joel Schumacher. It was a rush, and yeah, to Joe Hollenbeck, it was cool. You could also argue that considering the events that lay in the future of Ain't It Cool News, Joe Hollenbeck got out at the right time. But looking back at these events now two decades later, Joe Hollenbeck describes this whole debacle as a blessing in disguise. You know, it was, it was a, you know, best thing and the worst thing that ever happened to me. Explain that. Uh, you know that scene in, in City Slickers where they're talking about the best day and the worst day of their life? Yeah. And, and Bruno Kirby has that story about, you know, his asshole father. He finally stands up to him. He, you know, tells him to get the hell out and goes, that's the best day and the worst day of his life. Uh, same thing with me. It's sort of like, you know, it was a slap in the face that I needed to, to grow up, um, to, you know, take the responsibility for my own actions and, you know, take, take my, uh, you know, take my punishment and, and, uh, and then do something with my life. What was your punishment? 
I did uh, like 480, yeah, sorry, 480 hours community service and a fine, a hefty fine. You know, like based on the description they have on like the beginning of the tapes, those FBI warnings, it sounds like you, that's not a bad deal, right? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't a bad deal. And, and and that's because they realized it wasn't what they expected. It wasn't like I had this massive operation. In retrospect, what was perhaps the most shocking part about Ronwell's hard-hitting three-part expose that he wrote for Film Threat is that even if he did levy some serious, credible charges at both Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, no one really cared. No one really cared in part because of Kevin Smith. Back at San Diego Comic-Con, where Wells tried to hurl these comments at Harry in front of a live audience, Eric Vespi says that Smith, the director of such films as Clerks and Chasing Amy, reacted to the whole situation by trying to shut it down. Kevin Smith steps in and is like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, who the fuck are you? Sit, sit down. Nobody asked you anything. Like, And Kevin Smith came in and like instantly diffused the conversation and was just calling him like an idiot for trying to to break all this stuff and none of it made you know sense. Another reason that no one really cared, according to Vespi, is because Harry Knowles had never responded to these accusations, a tact he would take later when accused by multiple women of sexual misconduct in 2017. You know, that was a huge mistake for Harry because the stuff that stuck wasn't, I mean, some of the Drew, the, the Drew script stuff still stick, sticks around, but nobody talks about the VHS shit anymore. Nobody talks about any of that stuff. The stuff that stuck with the film threat things was the accusations of, of being bought off. The final reason that most people didn't care, for the most part, is because the truth of it was, like some interdimensional traveler in a comic book or science fiction novel, Harry had escaped from the world he was from. His celebrity might have been made on the internet, but unlike Ron Wells, Patrick Sorial, or any other online journalist who was critical of Harry Knowles at the time, Harry had escaped to the real world, where his online indiscretions didn't matter. As for the real world where Harry had escaped, big things are starting to happen for both the webmaster and Ain't It Cool News. Comedy Central had pitched a pilot for a TV show to Harry Knowles, which like his website, was going to be titled Ain't It Cool News. In addition to the Comedy Central pilot, Harry received a lucrative book deal from Time Warner, the same company Harry Knowles had rankled only a few years ago when his negative coverage of the film Batman and Robin helped cause the film to tank at the box office. We will talk about how both of these opportunities panned out in later episodes. However, there was a third opportunity to pursue a project outside of his website that paid off big time for Harry Knowles. This third opportunity was the creation of a new film festival that Harry would christen with the weird name, But Namathon. Ain't It Cool News writer Rebecca Elliott, aka Annette Kellerman, says that when Harry was involved with the initial planning phase for this new film festival with Tim League, co-founder of the Alamo Draft House, she thought he was out of his mind. We were already going to the Draft House all the time for like, not all the time, but um, it happened a lot for like all night, like the all night exploitation fest. Well then... <laughs> I remember Harry telling me that he had just gotten off the phone with Tim and that they were going to do a 24-hour marathon called Buttonomathon. And I just thought, are you insane? Like, I can barely stay awake for the all-nighters, but okay. And sure as shit, they did it. And yeah, I went to every single one of them. It's important to note that having attended a Buttonomathon myself, sitting in the less than plush seats that the original Alamo Drafthouse had at the time for the entire day, 
did in fact cause me to lose feeling in my lower extremities. So the festival certainly lived up to its name, running yearly from 1999 to 2016, but Namathon was a raucous scene for film lovers. Aside from the many far-flung writers who worked for Ain't It Cool News, this one-day festival drew attendees from across the globe, some of whom were directors like Ryan Johnson and Eli Roth. You even had actors like Elijah Wood. These people attended not because they were trying to promote the movies they were in, but because they actually just wanted to watch movies all day. Multiple sources also shared that conservative political pundit Meghan McCain, the daughter of late U.S. Senator John McCain, as well as former co-host of The View, attended Butnamathon, not just once, but twice. But according to Ain't It Cool News writer Jeremy Smith, almost no one who attended this 24-hour film festival enjoyed the experience of non-stop movie-watching more than actor-turned-filmmaker Joseph Gordon-Levitt. My favorite Butnamathon story is, uh, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's a really good one. Uh, the year that jo Joseph Gordon-Levitt was there with uh, Rian Johnson, and uh, Joe... Uh, at the end, like, you know, it was, it was a good about He was just, he was totally into it. He was loving the movies. He was so jazzed by the end of that experience. He was like, I just remember him saying there, he's like, anyone want to go see a movie? And we were like, everyone was like, oh, you know, it was like, we're kind of tired. And he was like, he went to go see Black Swan. He went to go, he went to another movie after all of that. And that Bunnamathon had run long. It was like a 26-hour Bunnamathon. To further illustrate how crazy this festival was, here's a story about the second Butnamathon, or BNAT, that Harry shared during a eulogy he wrote for the late sexploitation director Russ Meyer when he died in 2004. In this story, Harry recalled the time that he screened Meyer's film Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens as part of his new festival. And you're not real. It's all here. Love, rape, murder, dope, grass, abortion, suicide. Something for everybody. Now hold it, man. Don't close your A good eyes. half of the audience hated it. Several women came up afterwards to tell me they loved it. And apparently X-Men producer Tom DeSanto sat quietly watching the film as the guy next to him masturbated through the screening. BNET might have originally been intended as a showcase for old films that were bad, challenging to watch, or straight up awful. Russ Meyer's Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, which oddly enough was written by Roger Ebert, was a great example of this programming aesthetic. But according to Drew McWeeney, the concept of Butnamathon quickly morphed when studios realized they could capitalize on the event as a way to generate buzz or hype for new movies. And it really felt like a turning point because DreamWorks I'll, I'll give DreamWorks and New Line credit for being the first two studios that really tried to work with us as opposed to against us or just or just ignoring us completely, which is how most studios handled it. But um, DreamWorks really tried to work with us. And I think their version of working with us was, all right, we'll show you things when we show them to other people. And, uh, you know, if there's stuff you really love and you want to get behind, we'll set up some screenings for you. You can show it to your audience. That's why after kicking off the mystery line of the films at the very first Bnet in 1999, with Ed Wood's infamously bad film Plan 9 from Outer Space, Harry was able to completely surprise audiences with the unreleased New Line Cinema's film Magnolia. And the book says we may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Boasting a three-plus-hour running time and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, Magnolia is in many ways a film festival in and of itself, a beautiful, albeit frequently demanding ode to Robert Altman and Old Testament plagues. So I can't imagine what it was like to see it as part of a 24-hour movie marathon. 
the first BNET also concluded with a premiere screening of the rockabilly post-apocalyptic film Six String Samurai. However, the film that benefited the most from its debut at the original BNET was the sci-fi alien thriller titled Pitch Black. Months before its release, in terms of pre-release hype, Pitch Black was basically dead on arrival. Polygram Entertainment, the studio that produced the film, was swallowed up by a merger with Universal Pictures. And Universal had every intention of merely dumping the film into a limited number of theaters with very little fanfare. After all, the film had no budget and a cast that included no stars, albeit a winning lead performance by an unknown actor named Vin Diesel. Finally found something worse than me, huh? David Tui, who wrote and directed the film, declined an interview for this program. But via email, he said, Pitch Black was an orphan film for an unnervingly long while. Polly Graham greenlit the movie and then collapsed while I was shooting in Australia. We weren't entirely sure we even had the money in the bank to make the movie, but we did what filmmakers do. We kept our heads down and kept rolling camera. Then we edited a film like we knew what we were doing. And then we finally finished the movie without a real production company and without a distributor in sight. Then we heard that Universal had the right to cherry pick two movies from the Polygram lineup. Lo and behold, they picked Pitch Black and decided to give us a limited release. A limited release for a low budget science fiction film in the 90s almost always spelled death at the box office. Indie films were frequently released this way in the art house theater circuit, where word of mouth allowed select films to emerge and move on to other cities. But most art house theaters would never book a film like Pitch Black, which ultimately means it would be abandoned to the churn and burn realm of the multiplex, where it would be lucky to survive for more than two weeks. Fortunately for the movie, Harry Knowles and Drew McGuinney decided to book the film as part of the lineup of the very first But Numathon. It's also important to add that aside from screening the film, the premiere would also feature its star Vin Diesel, who would be appearing at the event. According to Ain't It Cool News writer Alan Cerny, with this opportunity to host Vin Diesel as a special guest, Harry Knowles had an idea for the actor to do more than just introduce the film. He was gonna come in and introduce the movie, and apparently Harry had told him, don't come in yet, wait till the movie plays and then come in at the end of the film, because Harry and Drew had already saw it, and they, they, they thought, that Pitch Black was something that a studio was sitting on, they shouldn't be, it was actually a really good movie. And it is, I, I'll go to bat for Pitch Black any day. But they said, wait till the movie's over and then come in and see what the crowd does. And so he, he doesn't come in, he doesn't introduce the movie, the movie plays and he comes in at the end of it and the crowd went ape shit, ape shit. Paul Alvarado Dykstra, who was at the event, agrees with this assessment. That was the stuff of legend. And that was sort of Butnamathon at its at its best, both in terms of here's a movie you've never heard of. You're going to be the first people to see it. Um, we're trusting this audience with that. And then, by the way, this breakout star turn, like person you've just met and experienced with this film. Now he's actually going to walk through the screen, essentially. Like, out of the movie, into reality, in front of you. Uh, and we're going to do it at like 3 in the morning, <laughs> when everyone's kind of like out of it. With a limited promotional budget, Pitch Black went on to make $39 million off of a $23 million budget, and the film's numbers exploded on home video and DVD. The film went on to spawn two movie sequels, two video game spin-offs, and an animated film. There's also a rumor that a new film is in development. 
And according to David Tui, the director of Pitch Black, this screening at BNAT was instrumental in helping this film become the unlikely sleeper hit that it did. The reaction to that screening and the glowing reviews by Harry and Drew on AICN probably opened Uni's eyes more than a bit, contributing to them upping their P&A budget for Pitch Black and going for a wider release than originally planned. Now, by this time, I was already a successful screenwriter, but the guys at AICN did help launch my directing career. I owe them a debt. Perhaps more importantly, the movie prepped the launch for Vin Diesel, who, regardless of how we might feel about him, has become one of the biggest movie stars working today. Here's Alan Cerny. Vin Diesel was just the guy who voiced the Iron Giant at that time and was in in Saving Private Ryan for 15 minutes. If anything broke Vin Diesel, it was but Numathon that first year. Vin Diesel went on to become one of the biggest actors in the world. And no, I'm not saying that Ain't It Cool News is completely or even largely responsible for the actor's rise. But this thumbs up from Harry, Drew McQueenie, the rest of the writers, and more importantly, the readers of Ain't It Cool News helped to trigger a snowball effect. And the snowball effect that started with Pitch Black would most certainly have never happened if both the movie and Vin Diesel had to rely solely on the lukewarm coverage of newspaper critics, many of whom wrote the film off and thought its star to be largely unremarkable. Perhaps that's why, much like Harry Knowles, Vin Diesel went on to create his own personal influence machine, a homebrewed recreation of Ain't It Cool News of sorts via social media. There he connects with more than 100 million fans directly by passing the gatekeepers of traditional news media coverage. Case in point, this video, where Vin Diesel primes his fans to get ready for the post-COVID release of his new Fast and Furious movie. For more than a hundred years, there's one place where we all came together to be entertained, to escape, to go someplace new. The movies. Even if you might not think much of the movie Pitch Black, the film was in many ways a victorious scrimmage. Not only for Ain't It Cool News, but for the next decade of cinema culture that would ensue. The 90s might have been a time for fiercely independent voices, led by movies like Pulp Fiction and its contemporaries. But that decade was coming to an end. And in this new decade, the 2000s, which I call the fanboy era, we traded our independence for escapism. You see, before the 2000s, science fiction, fantasy, horror, and comic book movies were often seen as viable genres by the film industry. However, in the fanboy era, these genres went from being viable within cinema culture to dominant, leaving little room for discourse about anything else. It was the era that gave us such popular movie franchises as The Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. The era when the late Heath Ledger would win a posthumous Oscar for playing comic book supervillain the Joker in The Dark Knight. The era that birthed the multi-billion dollar behemoth known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And as all of these things were happening, Ain't It Cool News was there. If not leading, very much influencing the vanguard, advocating, cheering, and in some cases enabling what would happen next. Here's Drew McWeenie. And the mainstream press followed us in many cases. They started expanding what they talked about after we did because we had led them there. There were many staff writers and contributors who worked diligently and frequently without pay who made Ain't It Cool News as relevant as it was during the height of its power. But at the center, as far as both readers and writers of the site were concerned, much of it was built on a relationship. 
and that relationship at the center was between Harry Knowles and Drew McWheeney. Here's Zanuck Cool News writer Jeremy Smith. You know, it was an id and an ego thing. And, and, and Harry was the id and, you know, Drew was the ego. And, but, but after a while, I mean, I would, if Harry wrote a review, say, whatever big movie was coming out, I really didn't pay attention to it. I just, I didn't want to go through the, the tortured <laughs> syntax. Uh, and, and, and so I would wait for Drew's review. Jeremy's observation is keen. Sure, you had Harry Knowles, a self-professed living cartoon, who very much like an animated character, seemed possessed entirely of his id. His writing, which multiple sources have described as poor, was full of red flags that many people, including myself, ignored. But you also had Drew McWheeney. Drew represented the ego in ways that were both good and bad. We'll focus on the good ways for now in saying that he was a resilient and serious writer who had a vision for his work at Ain't It Cool News. He very much believed in the potential of this site to improve the world of filmmaking and entertainment as a whole. Part of my frustration was that I felt like we were underselling our audience. Like that audience was about more than just comic books and sci-fi and monster. Like I, I really believed that they would be interested in anything. Uh, if I was interested in it, why wouldn't somebody else be interested in it? And Harry's attitude increasingly was that it should be niche and more narrow. And I, I thought books should be covered. I thought games should be covered. I thought these things were all valid things that we should be looking at. And I really felt like we should be a business, like there was a business there to be started. What it ultimately was in his mind, I think, was a paycheck for a very select group of people. And as long as that was covered, nothing else mattered. As we'll show you in later episodes, once the relationship between the site's ego and id became unraveled, Ain't It Cool News basically had no choice but to fall prey to Harry's worst impulses. And in doing so, one could argue that he helped fuel a cultural shift that pushed entertainment journalism, as well as moviegoers, to do the same. Thinking of you Part 4 of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, titled Thumbs Up, was written, narrated, and edited by Joe Scott. It was executive produced by Christina Bell, with sound engineering by Eddie Garcia, production assistance by Reese Allen, and online production by Janessa Smith. It features Ben Jones as the voice of Harry Knowles, and my friend Greg Sestero as the voice of David Tui. Music credits include original theme music and other songs by Chester Endersby Guasta, as well as additional songs by Stephen Weir, White Bones, Alexandra Woodward, Kit and the Caltones, and David Holmes. The song you're listening to right now is at the Movies on Quaaludes by The Flaming Lips from their fantastic new record, American Head. Also, while I normally recommend movies, I'm not going to do that this time. Instead, I'm going to say that you should check out the narrative podcast series Gene and Roger by Brian Raftery. Gene and Roger focuses on the complicated relationship between film critics Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, and I really only skimmed the surface of that in this episode, but that series takes that story and it runs deep. It's really good, and it's definitely worth a listen, so check it out. Download The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles is produced by Mixtape Media. Make sure to visit our website at downloadpod.com. That's download with a W instead of an A, pod as in podcast.com. There you can read show notes, ask a question, or even leave a message that could be played on our show. For the next chapter in this story, 
we will explore what happened to cinema culture when newspapers began to lay off local film critics across the country, only for that void to be filled by unpaid, mostly white, mostly male film geeks, many of whom were clones of Harry Knowles. All of this and more. So join us then as we dial up, log on, and download. Files done. Goodbye.